from MIT Technology Review. I'm Elizabeth Bramson Boudreau. And this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Cybersecurity, digital safety, data privacy, questions surrounding all of these issues are shaping the way we think about the future of work. More and more, how we answer these questions has a direct impact on our daily lives. This episode starts a series on cybersecurity. We'll be diving into everything from the latest on hacking attacks to what organizations like yours can do better to protect their people and their data. Today, we're going to hear about the latest in cybersecurity for companies and organizations from one of the people writing about it as it evolves. Martin Giles is the San Francisco Bureau Chief of MIT Technology Review, where he covers cybersecurity in the future of computing. In our conversation, we touched on everything from emerging threats to protecting your information. Let's listen. Thank you so much for joining us, Martin. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. Martin, you published a story in Technology Review at the beginning of the year in which you highlighted five emerging cyber threats we should be worried about. Which of those threats do you think is the most immediate risk? Um, Well, I think one that's really worrying um, is uh, a threat that's kind of targeted at the computing cloud. And we've seen a lot of companies move some or all of their processing and data to cloud service providers. Now, the big ones like Google or Amazon, they have significant resources and expertise in protecting uh, clients. But some of the smaller ones, they, they don't have the same kind of resources and know-how, and they're vulnerable. And last year, we saw a really striking attack. It's called Cloud Hopper. Um, and we think there's, it was Chinese hackers who were behind it. And basically what they did is they, they got into the systems of companies called managed service providers, which basically you know, provide telecoms and technology services over the internet. And from there, they were able to hop into the systems of the clients of some of these companies. We don't exactly know how much damage was done, but that's kind of like the first time we've seen a significant attack of, of this kind. So does that mean that if you're doing your cloud computing with someone that isn't one of these massive cloud computing solution providers that you're taking on a certain amount of risk um, in not going with an AWS or one of the other major cloud computing providers? That's a great question. I, I think you know the right answer is basically you need to do your due diligence very carefully. You need to understand exactly what kind of security uh, controls and expertise the particular provider you're looking at has, and in your service level agreements, you know the kind of contracts you you develop with them. You want to be very clear about you know if, if a hack like that occurs, you need to be told about it. I mean, sometimes companies will say, "Well, I don't need to tell my clients because." because I don't think any of their data was affected. You know, you need to be sure that if there is a breach, you know about it so that you can take the appropriate steps to protect your data and your, your um, particular interests. Okay. So another one of the threats you talked about in the story was artificial intelligence. And it's interesting because it depends on kind of who you talk to. If you're talking to a cybersecurity firm using AI, uh, AI is a solution. So help us understand the extent to which AI is being used as a way of detecting and shutting down attack. 
it's a great question. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, AI is getting slapped on on almost every kind of cybersecurity solution that's out there these days. And, you know, and in some ways, you know, you can understand why the industry is so, so keen to use this uh, leading edge technology. I mean, you know, cybersecurity defenders, they're, they're kind of overwhelmed with attacks. And these attacks are getting more and more sophisticated. So what AI can do is kind of like automate hunting, automate responses to hacks that occur so that things can happen much faster, much more efficiently than if humans were kind of in the loop. But, you know, you, you're right. You said, you know, I, I raised this issue of, of is this this kind of panacea? It isn't. And again, one has to be very careful because you know, a lot of these AI models are being trained using what's called supervised learning. What is that? That basically means you get large sets of data and you train them on this data and you kind of tell them, hey, this is malicious code. This is malware. This code's kind of OK. So when you spot this one, there's a problem. When you spot this one, it's fine. Now, there are two kind of dangers with that. Number one, you know, errors could get into that, that data set. And number two, if hackers get into the systems, the corporate systems, and find that data, they can actually switch the labels or they can poison the data set by putting in other kinds of information. So again, you know, you, you shouldn't, you can trust but verify if you like. I mean, always be careful, always be asking questions of the providers who are um, coming to you and saying, hey, AI is the solution to everything. So it's interesting because I've heard you, this relates to something I've heard you talk about, Martin, which is the, quote, death of the perimeter, because it's occurring to me that as you're talking, the assumption is that these uh, nefarious uh, actors are already inside the, the organization's security system. So can you talk about what that means, the death of the perimeter, and what people ought to be thinking about when they think about their security as such? Yeah. So, so what I mean by the death of the perimeter is, you know, kind of not so long ago, if you had kind of robust firewalls that basically separated your network from the outside world, from the rest of the uh, the internet, and you had strong antivirus programs that you were running on your systems, you know, you could kind of like spot the threats coming and keep them out before they got in. Now, that perimeter is dead. It is done. And it's done because... You know, we are seeing levels of sophistication um, among various kinds of, of hackers, including particularly ones from nation states who have you know, Ill unlimited resources and unlimited time to try to break into, uh, uh, in, into uh, companies' defences. You know, that is a, a game changer. And so now you basically, you know, there's kind of two kinds of companies. There's ones who've been hacked and ones who've been hacked but don't know it yet. And so in that respect, you need to have a, a mindset that says we've been penetrated. So we need to have inside our networks, inside our systems, the means to kind of spot somebody who's got in and shut them down before they can do any damage. That's what I mean by the death of the perimeter. Yeah, and I've heard this likened to the body's response to um, bacterial or viral infection. So the acceptance is that you know we can't keep uh, ourselves from our bodies from being exposed to viruses or bacteria, but rather our immune system is uh, hopefully able to combat it. So that's sort of the, the metaphor that I've heard uh, applied to the way we should be thinking about cybersecurity. 
I think it's a great analogy. Uh, and it's kind of like, you know, when companies are, are kind of preparing themselves, it's, it's, it's about cyber hygiene and cyber health. And so, I, you know, I love the way you've done that. And I think if more companies kind of thought like that, we would be in a better position overall as a society. Yeah, well, I can't take credit for it, but I, but I will. So thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we are seeing an awful lot of data breaches. Um, you're obviously these huge you know, very well publicized um, data breaches like Equifax. Um, I have a couple questions related to that. Why haven't we been able to get on top of these data breach problems? That's one. And secondly, how common or pervasive is it really? Or is it a case where this gets a lot of headlines because it, you know, some big, big uh, hacks impact a lot of people? Um, is it something that every company needs to be worried about, or are we still talking about something that's relatively uncommon? That's uh, a really important issue. Um, there's a, I think it's an American um, ice hockey player who said, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to skate where the puck's going, not where it is. And it's kind of like hackers go... I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, I'm yeah. just going to interrupt you and say that that Wayne Gretzky is a Canadian hockey player, and I think it's important that we get that fact. Uh, uh, I'm so oh, well. I'm British, so you know, I'm sorry, so sorry about that. But you know, hockey—it's whole hockey to me. Um, and so, you know, obviously, hackers are going where this data is, and companies are storing more and more of it. Right? It's it's cheaper than ever, thanks to the kind of cloud computing services we talked about earlier on. So there's these massive mountains of data being stored, and often what's what's happening is that they're not being properly protected. That's why we're seeing these these massive uh, breaches and you know you could say well we don't see that many of them and well, I think a lot of them don't get talked about right companies try and keep the the wraps on this stuff and it's striking to me that kind of like last year in Europe, uh, a new regulation came into effect called the General Data Protection Regulation, a GDPR. And since then, we've seen a massive increase in reports of breaches, right? And why is that? Because that regulation has swinging fines, really steep fines, up to 4% of a global turnover of a company. And so all of a sudden, bing, we see a lot more of these particular breaches coming out. So there is a problem. We don't really really yet know the full extent of it. Okay, so what should companies be doing to better protect their data? Uh, there is GDPR regulation, but if let's assume you're not in Europe and you're listening to this podcast, what should I be thinking about as the CEO of a company that has data like this? Right, well, well first of all, you should think, do I actually need to keep the data, right? I just think a lot of data just gets stored because companies think, hey, maybe someday I'll need it. And so I'll just keep it around. And by the way, it's really cheap to do. But that means that that data is vulnerable. So number one, do you really need to keep all the data you're keeping? Number two, if you do have data, you know, you need to put it on a secure um, database that is basically strongly protected using multiple passwords and the data needs to be encrypted, strongly encrypted, if it's sensitive personal information. You know, maybe there's some kinds of data if it gets out, it's not so serious. But you know, anything that is personally identifiable information from an individual or things like social security, health records, etc., that needs to be really strongly protected. And you also need to think about, you know, your suppliers and third parties, because often hackers get into their systems. You may have the best defenses out there, but if they get into their systems, they can find their way into your databases. So, again, you need to make sure that your entire supply chain that has access to that data is properly secured. 
Yeah, I think that's really important. I think a lot of people think, okay, I've got mine stitched up and uh, don't realize that there's a vulnerability in a partner that um, perhaps might not be quite as stitched up or might have an, some sort of arrangement with a cloud computing provider that isn't necessarily the, the most secure either. That's right. It's like, the, what's the weakest link in the chain? Make sure you understand who's in the chain and where that link may, may be. So we've been talking about hackers that are copying or stealing data, but what happens if they just encrypt it and then threaten to keep it locked down unless you pay a digital ransom? And sometimes I think this is done through untraceable cryptocurrency. And this and this and these so-called ransomware attacks are becoming more and more common, and they can really cause chaos, can't they? Yes, they, they absolutely can. You know, in 2017, we saw uh, a ransomware attack called WannaCry, which made a lot of people want to cry. Um, and the reason for that is basically it attacked, I think, something like 200,000 companies. And what it does, I mean, it's basically a worm. Now, a worm is a kind of piece of software that basically allows itself to replicate automatically from computer to computer in networks uh, without any human having to get involved. Involved. And so what this worm did was basically it locked down can, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of computers. And then uh, uh, the hackers asked for payments in untraceable cryptocurrencies to release the data. You know, we saw it again last year. There was a big Taiwanese semiconductor company that was hit by the same kind of attack. And it basically shut down its chip making facilities for days um, until that kind of attack was, was sorted out. So, you know, and then we also saw last year something to me that's really shocking is that these hackers are targeting cities, they're targeting municipalities. You know, Atlanta in March was hit by a ransomware attack, and basically, you know, it, it wiped out, you know, all kinds of legal files, it wiped out um, some of the uh, video that was being kept, you know, the kind of camera video that police keep, that disappeared, uh, it hit utilities, it hit all kinds of different services. And for days, you know, everything was out, people had to pay their bills using going back to paper, good old analog paper, rather than, um, than digital payments. So this is this is a significant shift we have seen over the past, I would say, five to six years. And it's extremely worrying. So why are they targeting cities? Is it just about um, assessing spots of particular vulnerability and maybe municipal IT systems are not as robust as corporate ones? Well, that's a great that's a great question. Um, my understanding is that you know there were reports before this attack took place that showed that Atlanta had I think some something like you know one thousand eight hundred or two thousand unpatched vulnerabilities. That's flaws in the kind of software that was running across all of its municipal operations, and so you know, that's exactly the kind of gift that hackers go looking for. It's like wow, we have this whole toolkit of exploits that we can target that's exploits are sort of sophisticated um, hacks that can target these kind of vulnerabilities to get access to systems so if you do have these you know if you're not patching and you're updating your software regularly to kind of close those vulnerabilities that's exactly what they're looking for and I guess you know in particular Atlanta but probably many other municipalities may not be paying as much attention to that as say a corporation. So I want to get back to talking about what companies and executives should do about cyber attacks. But before that, I also want to ask you about 
the Internet of Things and cyber threats associated with Internet of Things enabled devices. Uh, and I know many people go out and buy inexpensive made in China IoT devices like cameras for their homes or an, an, any number of things that may not be particularly secure. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, in your own home, Elizabeth, I mean, how many sort of web connected devices do you think there are? I mean, everything from your router to maybe your fridge. I mean, what have you got in there? Oof, probably, I'm going to guess it's 10, maybe? Yeah, that's e exactly. It's like, that's kind of like the numbers. I mean, we're talking double digits now in many homes, right? And a lot of these devices, as you, you rightly point out, you know, they, they kind of have like weak security when they come in. They have kind of default password settings on them. Um, you know, they, they don't have kind of robust um, protections against kind of in, you know, intrusions. And so what we're seeing is kind of this um, internet of really worrying things. And, you know, there are... Uh, yeah, there's there's moves afoot to try and kind of like encourage um, the producers, the manufacturers of these devices to kind of upgrade the, the security, right, and industry efforts. But I think, you know, maybe this is one area where ultimately we're going to have to see the government step in. Um, and actually, where I am in California, you know, uh, California has the first, uh, has passed the first kind of IoT-specific law that I know of. Um, it's going to come into effect in 2020, at the beginning of 2020. And basically what it says is, you know, you, you, manufacturers of these products have to take reasonable efforts, reasonable steps um, to you know, increase security in their products. Now, that's kind of vague, right? Um, but in particular, they kind of said, you know, you, you must have the ability to change a default username and to establish a unique password for the device. Now, you know, like I said, it's, it's kind of a, I mean, it's, it's not ideal. It's by any shape, sense or form, but it's a first step. And I think, you know, because many manufacturers who sell in California sell elsewhere, hopefully they will, you know, everybody else will get the benefit of this. Right. And if you're making your devices compliant for California, which is obviously a populous uh, state, then you may as well, you know, you may as well roll that out across the product line nationwide, I suppose. That's right. Is the concept. Yeah. The well, one hopes so, but there's no guarantee of that. But I right. think if you're if you're a company, you know, you're thinking about what this means to you. So that's the kind of manufacturing side. But what about as a company that's seeing more and more connected devices, you know, coming into its offices? You know, we're connecting everything from light bulbs to heating systems to the internet. You know, the the kind of attack surface, as as the cybersecurity folk like to call it, is kind of expanding really rapidly. And so again, you know, number one, it's important to kind of audit what you've got in your your manufacturing facilities, in your offices. What exactly have you got? What's con that's connected? How is it protected? How does it hook up to your network? What kind of protections does it have? And what kind of protections do you have in your network that can stop hackers getting to those particular devices? And you know, it's kind of frightening because ultimately, at the end of the day, we're seeing. You know, very determined, probably nation state, well, definitely nation state hackers from places like Russia uh, and North Korea targeting industrial equipment, um, you know, trying to get in and take control of processes that could actually be really dangerous. So, you know, this is a massive issue. It's, you know, it's a whole topic in and of itself for, for a future discussion. You've painted a pretty bleak picture of the cyber threat landscape. I know you're not a bleak guy, but the picture's a little bleak. 
if I'm listening to this and I am responsible for making these kinds of decisions for my company, should I rush out to get cyber insurance to protect us if we are a victim of hackers? Yeah, you're right. I'm not a particularly bleak guy. I like to try and look on the bright side of things. But I think you know, we have to be realistic, right? It's a balance of risk and reward. You know, generally, you know, we are doing pretty well at this. You know, we're not all under our desks wearing tinfoil hats and, and panicking. So you know, the, there's a very big and very sophisticated cybersecurity industry out there that's doing, you know, a pretty good job of, of trying to keep us safe. Um, but at the same time, you know... Breaches will happen. Remember what I said about the death of the perimeter. You know, they are inside. They will get inside and sometimes they'll succeed. So what can you do? So insurance is like an obvious kind of like way to sort of underwrite the risk if somebody does do something bad to you. And there are good things. So, well, to take a step back. Now, number one, general insurance policies, you know, some people think they cover cyber risks. And actually, this is interesting because there's a very big court case going on right now between uh, Mondelez International, which makes things like Oreos, um, which are American cookies, not Canadian ones. And uh, the, basically, it had a cyber attack last, uh, I think, two years ago, maybe, um, which basically put it, a lot of its systems out of action. And it has made a claim, I think, for $100 million from Zurich American Insurance. And Zurich says, well, on your general policy, we're not going to recognize that. Because I think, fundamentally because they're claiming it's an act of war because it was probably a nation state hacker that, that did the hack now so your general policies may be not covering you you know and so a lot of people are looking at trying to buy cyber policies there aren't very many of them around at the moment you know insurers are still nervous about this the good thing about these policies is that before an insurer will underwrite one they're going to go through your systems your processes and procedures your personnel to make sure that you have the very best defenses in place that's the good news the bad news and do an audit, effectively an, a fundamental top-to-toe audit of, of your security posture. Um, the bad news is kind of, I'm sure they're writing a ton of exclusions too. <laughs> Maybe after this court case, they'll be saying, yeah, and we can't cover you against nation-state hacks, and we can't cover this particular risk or that particular risk. So again, it's not a panacea, but I think it's a really interesting development, you know, in this intersection between financial services, technology, and geopolitical risk. Well, I think what you're saying is that general insurance may or may not cover it, uh, is trying to avoid um, liability for hacking. Um, cyber insurance may is, is sort of nascent, but if even if it does sort of blossom as an industry, there will probably be all kinds of caveats against things like nation-state attacks. So is cyber insurance even worth spending one's time researching? Yeah, it's, you, you characterize it perfectly. I, I just think it's... Um yeah, it's an open question. Like I said, you know, it can can encourage you to do things that perhaps you might not have thought of doing by yourselves. But right now, I think the risk reward ratio is is still perhaps not attractive enough to make it you know a must have. So, what about collaboration with this between businesses, governments, and the security kind of industry to handle cyber threats? First of all, is that kind of collaboration is it possible? Uh, do our governments have the ability, in particular, I'll pick on government, does our government have the sort of understanding of the issues to be able to engage in that kind of collaboration? Is it happening? Uh, and what do you think about it if it were to occur? Yeah, that's you raised you know, two very 
good questions there. I mean, the first one, does government have the kind of depth of knowledge? Well, you know, in the sense that government often has experts working for it that are trained hackers themselves to go and attack other um, countries, kind of uh, companies and infrastructures, you know, they certainly have in-house some knowledge, um, uh, some sophisticated knowledge of this kind of thing. However, in general, I think you know, nobody really understands your risks as well as you do, or at least you should do if you're a company. You have the insights into who might be, you know, posing a threat to you. You should have the insights into where you might be vulnerable and how best to deal with that. However, you know, we are talking about nation state hackers now increasingly who are attacking companies and searching for you know everything from data to intellectual property and maybe to even you know, have the potential to cause physical harm and that's a game changer and there i think you know we do need to think about the interface between government um, the private sector and security the security kind of research industry and tighter collaborations essential so you know you often see you know like the department of homeland security in america and the fbi get called in when there's a big hack and increasingly there's kind of like an interchange it's not ideal right there's, we're way away from an ideal kind of exchange of data and, you know often it's kind of one way up to the government and not much comes back but we're getting better at that um but I think there's one kind of area that I think is really important to try and uh, resolve, and that is there is a whole set of people out there like, called white hat hackers, and their job basically is to go out and tr try to penetrate companies' networks and systems to see if they can f get in. And then if they find a vulnerability, they report it to the company. And many companies now have bug bounty programs, so they, they pay hackers if there's a kind of responsible disclosure. Uh, they don't just suddenly say, hey, I found this thing, guess what? They actually report it to the company, so the company has time to actually address the risk before an announcement of the, um, of the bug is made. But, and, and there's financial rewards. If you don't have one of those programs, I think it would be really important to explore it and think of setting one up because it's a very effective way of kind of, you know, identifying where there may be weaknesses without, um, you know, before hackers get in. Um, but there's a legal grey area. And it's still, you know, we're still seeing cases of hackers being sued, white hat hackers being sued for penetrating networks, you know, and they find a bug, they report it, and the company says, hey, actually, we're going to sue you because you basically broke the law in doing that. And, you know, technically, in some cases, they did. So I think you know, we need to kind of all get together and work out how we can create a better kind of ha safe haven for this kind of activity. Oh, that's fascinating. Martin, thank you. This has been a very interesting conversation. Do you have any final pieces of advice for our listeners, things that they should bear in mind, given that you are the cybersecurity expert here at Technology Review? Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's basically two fundamental messages. You know, the first one, I mean, we were talking earlier on about um, you know, the kind of thinking of, of uh, cybersecurity threats as like a, a health issue. I mean, cyber hygiene, making sure you are doing the basics really well is so important. And that's everything from regularly changing passwords, using very hard to crack passwords, to um, making sure you patch your software regularly, you update it regularly, and make sure you whitelist software. That means basically making sure that only certain people authorized to upgrade a, uh, or change a particular piece of code can actually 
actually do so. Those are all kind of like Cyber 101. And there are some great great lists out there like the SANS 21, S-A-N-S 21, that basically have these kinds of checks on them. And you just follow those. And then the second thing, and that's what I tried to get across in the, the article, which you talked about at the beginning, you know, these kind of emerging cyber threats, is, you know, be prepared to think the unthinkable. You know, often, you know, we don't, you know, we don't get creative enough in thinking about where threats can come from. And trust me, the hackers on the other side, they are super creative. Thank you, Martin. As a reminder, you can follow Martin on Twitter at Martin Giles. Giles is spelled G-I-L-E-S. This has been the first episode in a series on cybersecurity. And in our next two episodes, we will go into greater depth on some of the topics we touched upon today, including the latest on hacking attacks and what companies can do to protect their people and their data. So Martin, thank you. And thank you all for listening. Thanks, Elizabeth, for having me in to talk about this really, really important subject. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Elizabeth Bramson Boudreau. I'm the CEO and publisher of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can find us in print, on the web, at dozens of live events each year, and now in audio form. For more information about us and our show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. The show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next with help from Emily Townsend and editorial help from Mindy Blodgett. Special thanks to our guest, Martin Giles. You can get more from Martin on Twitter at Martin Giles, that's all one word, M-A-R-T-I-N-G-I-L-E-S on Twitter. Get well soon, Martin. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with our next episode.